Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of the North American Soccer Show. Um, this is going to be episode one covering the first section of games um, from this week from the MLS is Back tournament. Coming to you live from the bubble. No, not us. We're a little bit more spread out than that. Uh, my name is Dylan Baker. I'll be the host of this podcast. You can find me on Twitter at, at DLN underscore BKR. Joining me today, if you've if you've paid any attention to World Football Index's website, you have seen Mr. Chris Smith. Chris, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm great, thank you. And also with me today from Newfoundland is Brady Reed. Brady, how are you? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm uh, humbled to be the inaugural guest, so I'm just uh, ready to go here. I think probably by podcast, and you'll regret saying that, but I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> So what we're going to do is to to start things off. Um, I want to I want to just talk about a little bit about the, the MLS's back tournament. We've seen in a variety of different leagues, uh, especially in Europe, that have restarted. That in the first few games, maybe uh, two or three, some teams, uh, especially in the uh, in the Bundesliga and the Premier League, uh, may have been enjoying a pretty solid run prior to the uh, the shutdown due to the coronavirus pandemic. And now uh, with these other leagues, you're, you're three quarters of the way through the season. Uh, everything shuts itself down. And then you've got to find a way to come back and, and reignite that form. Whereas with MLS, you know, with them running a, um, a, a March to October style season, two, maybe three games have been played by these teams prior to the shutdown. And then uh, we've got this MLS's back tournament. So, uh, Chris, I'll start with you. Tell me, has there been anything surprising about the display of soccer on the pitch that we've seen thus far in the tournament? Have you did you kind of expect a little bit of layoff or the the slow start, or is it even worse than you had imagined? Uh, I wouldn't say it was worse than I imagined. Um, there's, I think the the biggest thing that stood out in terms of rust has been sort of the lack of cutting edge in front of goal. Uh, there's been quite a few big chances missed. There was like the, the Rui Diaz chance to sell Seattle Sounders and things like that, but in terms of actually the, the quality of performance on the pitch, I think it's generally been quite good. Um, I think all the teams that usually press are still pressing quite effectively. Uh, there seems to be plenty of energy on the pitch. Um, another thing that's really stood out for me that I've really enjoyed watching it on TV has been the sort of level of access we get around the pitch. So all the on-field microphones picking up instructions from the managers and things like that. I think that's that's been a really good positive. That has been a pretty unique aspect of this tournament with the with not only the pitch side, but uh, I, I think in six or seven different places on the pitch itself, uh, having microphones dug in to try and pick up all of this uh, all of this audio to replace what normally would be crowd sound. It's been it's been an interesting aspect to to get a little bit closer look for those who who tend to watch the game more uh, on television rather than live uh, to see just exactly what goes on on the pitch, what sort of communications you tend to hear from players and and from coaches onto the pitch. Brady, maybe we can agree with Chris and say that maybe the 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 rust and the and the dust getting shaken off is is a little bit normal. But have there been any and have there been any teams that you've you've seen or uh, that you expected to come out of the gates pretty positively? Um, and just haven't done so, or or, or maybe a, maybe a side that wasn't supposed to really start all that well based on how their MLS season started, um, and has actually been almost better than expected. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you know in the in the other Group C match, I, I do a lot of Toronto FC coverage, so I had a keen eye on the uh, the Revolution and the impact the other night. And and quite honestly, I, I was pretty disappointed with the impact, be be it a rival of Toronto or not. Um, they just they looked flat. They looked confused out there, um, and and it just wasn't the team that we've seen, you know, back in February, both in in the MLS and in the uh, Concacaf Champions League. Um, 
And conversely, I thought Columbus crew looked fantastic last night. I mean, I know Cincinnati, they've got some growing pains and a new coach and obviously not coming off the best year necessarily, but I mean, a four nil score line and, and, and they just, they looked far more comfortable than I had anticipated. So, you know, full marks to them for that. It has been a, a pretty unique start uh, to the MLS tournament or the MLS's back tournament. First one that I want to touch on, maybe a surprise result, maybe not, is New York Red Bulls won Atlanta United nil. Chris, I, it seems like every time Joseph Martinez goes down, when it, whether it be unavailable due to suspension or or unavailable through injury, it just seems like Atlanta United aren't the same team and. You know, they they seem to find ways with the departure of Miguel Almiron to Newcastle. They seem to find ways to create for Joseph Martinez, but through it has to be four transfer windows now. They've not they've not really done a good job deputizing Joseph Martinez whenever he's not available to them. And as as time has gone on, he's not as available as he used to be. So is it a recruitment issue uh, where incoming players have have failed to live up, up to expectations? Are, are there the right players in the system uh, to replace him, but the you know you've you've got guys like Pity Martinez, you've got Manuel Castro, you've got Mateus Rosetto, um, not bad players in, in any respect, but they just don't seem to quite get it done on the pitch. Both both during this MLS's back tournament uh, in their in their first match against Red Bulls and prior to, is it a player issue? Is it a system issue? What is it that you're seeing that seems to make the most sense for why Atlanta United aren't Atlanta United at all without him? I think to to say it's a recruitment issue would be quite harsh, just mainly because of the league that they play in. Uh, it's really hard to sort of build a fully fleshed out roster with the rules that are in place in terms of like designated players and things like that. The exception to the rule, I'd say, is probably LASC having uh, Dama Diamandi and Bradley Wright Phillips to back up Carlos Vela. Beyond that, there's not many teams around that you could say have two top class centre forwards um, and and only play with one of them as well. Uh, I think it's more of sort of a selection issue. I personally, last night, I mean, they used Rosetto as a false nine last night and he was very isolated, didn't get into the game much at all. In that sort of my previews to the game, I was more trumping for the idea of playing Pity Martinez as a false nine. Other than that, I'd have liked to have seen Adam Yarn given a go as a as a sort of a target man and have, say, Barco and Pity Martinez playing behind him. Um, but I think to say it's a recruitment issue, eh? It's it's a tough league to to build such a fully fleshed out squad. Um, what I would say is you are right. Atlanta United are definitely not Atlanta United without Joseph Martinez. Um, and whether you're in MLS or the Premier League, you have to find solutions to that problem. Otherwise, they're, they're not going to challenge for MLS Cup again. Well, and especially with the with the the way that New York came out in this match, um, you know they they they've been a high pressing side for a few years now. It was a it was a system that that you you started seeing uh, pretty strong glimpses of when Jesse Marsh was at the helm, and then with his departure, you've almost seen it ramp up um, with Chris Armas and. There was no exception on the day as far as the pressing goes. Now, you make a good point, especially with Pity Martinez uh, deployed as a false nine. And part of the reason that you try and run with a false nine in in your system is to give you a central player that's in areas that you 
typically wouldn't find a, a number nine in to help you beat the press. And it just didn't work out on the day. So it, it is it, at least in this match is it, can you boil Atlanta United struggles on the day down to uh, a solid performance by by New York? Um, and and to, to further that point, do you think that Chris Armas uh, has built upon the system instilled during Jesse March's tenure at the club? Or has he defined a system of his own with this team? Uh, I think touching on the first point, Red Bulls did play really well. But I, I do actually think that Atlanta also played quite well themselves. Uh, George Bellow and, and Brooks Lennon pushed up really high uh, in, in DeBoer's 3-4-3. They got in behind quite a lot and they did, they did create chances. It was just that, that problem of not having Joseph Martinez there. There was no one to finish him. Uh, Castro blazed a few over the bar. Pity Martinez had one save. Bellow hit the bar. So they did play well. It wasn't a great performance, but I think it was good enough to at least earn a point on another day. Uh, the main the main problem was by virtue of pushing your, your wing back so high, it left a ton of space behind him. And that's exactly where Valo ran in for, for the goal, uh, right where George Bellow would have been if it was more of a back five rather than a back three. In terms of the question on, on Red Bulls, it, I think what Chris Armas is doing is definitely a continuation of, of Jesse Marsh. I was reading something on one to Metro before, about like even down to the struggles that they both had early doors. Um, Marsh lost, I think it was 20 points from winning positions in 2016. Chris Armas lost 22 last season. So they both had the sort of similar problems working out how to press. Uh, and I think they're both finding similar solutions. What interested me last night about Red Bulls was for the first five minutes, they came out like a house on fire. Like they were really hunting in packs and, um, I expected Atlanta to deal a bit better with it, with Meza at centre-back rather than uh, LGP. Obviously, he's going to into Miami. Uh, they, they just couldn't cope. They couldn't play out. They, they were suffocated. Once they actually got the goal, Red Bulls did actually settle into a bit more of a, a, a 4-2-4, but a bit deeper, which I found really interesting because I haven't seen Red Bulls do that before. Um, and the, the pitch-side mites, as I mentioned before, picked up on Armis asking... Red Bulls to use the ball going to Mo Adams as a trigger for them to press. So they obviously highlighted a weakness that Atlanta have and sort of attacked it rather than just going all out and hunting impacts and chasing for the entire game, which I don't think is sustainable this early in the season. You've got a guy like Brad Guzan. A lot of criticism has gone his way, especially in the last two to three years. Um, and and in this match, he was, I don't know if you can put him at, at fault for this particular goal. Uh, some will, some won't, based on what their opinion of the American goalkeeper is. But on the whole, Guzan had a really good match tonight. And and you have to ask, especially with all the ask, the, the questions being asked around him over the, the last couple of years, considering that he's 35, that is, is Guzan somebody that, is going to have to, by necessity, play uh, between the sticks for the remainder of the season? Or is 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 this a position, in your mind, that needs to be looked at almost immediately uh, by Atlanta going forward if they're really going to try and solidify their defense? Uh, I, I personally am a big fan of Brad Guzan. I, as you mentioned, he, he made a couple of big saves last night. I think the, the scoreline could have been a lot worse without him. And there's been times over the years where he has pulled Atlanta out of a, a couple of holes. Of course, there's been times where he's let them down. I, th- I think it was uh, D- Dillion's goal in the conference semi-finals last year. Probably could have done better with that. But on the whole, I, I think he's he's definitely one of their stronger players. I also think he's really well well suited to Dubois' style. I think he's an underrated ball player. I remember 
Marco's goal against Nashville in the first game of the season. He gets the ball in his own six-yard box and plays this line-breaking pass straight through into the midfield when he's under pressure. And it's that kind of thing as well. I think DeBoer sees that kind of quality in him. And looking at the looking at the other side uh, a little bit more closely for just a second, I know um, one of the players that you highlighted in your in your match report for this game was Christian Caceres. Um, talk to me about his influence on the pitch and how this was how this was maybe a groundbreaking performance from him in terms of really fighting his way into the first team plans. Yeah, he's, he's a player that's that's caught my eye for quite a while now because I think one of the reasons Red Bull struggled last season to sort of hold on to a lead was losing Tyler Adams. Uh, I think the press lost a lot of direction. I think they lacked that, that energy that he gives you in midfield. I, I think Sarah's junior really has started offering those similar qualities. Last night, he, he was he was tackling all over the pitch. He was making interceptions. He was back and forward. like He never stopped running. Um, but on the ball as well, he was really controlling, really measured, accurate with his passing, ambitious with his passing. I think Atlanta really struggled to deal with his late runs into the box as well. He, he nearly scored, um, I think it was just before half-time, running through with a late a late arrival into the box. Uh, that was one of the, the saves that Guzan made, but the, the sheer energy of his performance last night, it, it was fantastic. I don't, I don't think that press from the Red Bulls is possible without him last night. And going forward, if this is going to be the, the the style of play that Chris Armas is going to try to deploy, especially once we get on the other end of this tournament, one of the things that I've noticed watching this tournament uh, is that there are some teams who are trying some things. You know, you we're, we're talking about that switch to a, like a deeper four two four once they had gone a goal ahead with New York. Um, Philadelphia Union had a really youthful side uh, going into this tournament that you wouldn't normally expect to see. There have been some surprises along those lines, and and for New York, based on this small sample size, and 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 more importantly, since you brought uh, brought the sale of Tyler Adams to 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 Red Bull Leipzig over in Germany, uh, do you see Casarius as the way forward for the the rest of the season? Do you think that this is too small of a sample size to tell at the moment, or do you think that his performance was telling enough? To, to isolate it down to one performance last night, yeah, I think that would be sort of overarching a little bit. But this isn't the first good performance we've seen from him in a, in a Red Bull shirt. He, he's been good since he made the step the step up from the youth from the youth side. So, as I said before, he's got a lot of those qualities that Tyler Adams has, and I think if if Chris Armas is going to keep playing the Red Bulls way, I think he's going to be really important in that midfield. Perfect. So, Brady, I'm going to come across to you to talk to me about the Montreal Impact versus New England Revolution match. Now, on paper, and reading some of the match reports from this game uh, that, that have been posted online, it there wasn't a whole lot to say about it. But w- while we were talking prior to prior to recording, the you you noticed quite a few things in this match that were that that stood out to you. So, one of the things that I want to start with is. The Revolution really had impacts number in this match, uh, and and ultimately the one nil scoreline, based on what we were talking about, ultimately is a is a bit of a flattering one. Do you think that the final score is more of a, a reflection of New England's quality, or do you think it has more to do with uh, Montreal Impact either having a poor start to this tournament or potentially being a little bit on the downturn? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be fair to say that it's probably a happy medium. Uh, I mean, we talked about earlier there was. We were only two matches into the season before everything obviously got disrupted and, and these teams had already played and it was in Montreal, but you know, they won two to one on the night and, and you know, they, they probably are, they probably deserved the three points. So, you know, coming in, I, 
I, I thought Montreal were at least good for a draw, if not the favorite. And uh, yeah, they just they just didn't have it the other night. And, and to be fair, Terry Henry, like you mentioned earlier about you know trying some different things in this tournament, he, he certainly tried some different things that I'm not sure that they worked out in his advantage. Um, you know, Samuel Piet is is a guy who plays in that holding midfield position traditionally, both for Montreal and for the Canadian national team. And, you know, he's a bruiser in there and he, he defensively he's, he, he's massive for club and country, but he, he's a, he's a one dimensional player. I mean, he's a great player, but he, he's really good at one thing. And, you know, and Henri had him playing right wing back and it, it really just didn't work out. And, and, and the biggest reason that that baffled me was, you know, I watched that, that previous matchup back back in February, and uh, another Canadian international was playing that position, uh, Zachary Burl Gilliard, and, and he was just torching New England out on that side. So, you know, he, he was sat on the bench, and 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 that kind of that kind of surprised me, and, uh, and it was going to be interesting to see how they line up. And you know, New England were just absolutely torching them in the middle of the field, to be honest. And you know, Victor Wanyama was making his debut, and. You know he still has some quality, but he he's just unable to, to make up the ground that he once could, and and it was it was nil nil at the half, but it, it could have been two or three, and then once New England got the one, they, they they were really in cruise control from there. Montreal never really threatened. Well, we'll we'll touch on Wanyama in, in, in a moment, but to 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 kind of keep the conversation going a little bit about Thierry Henry, club legend, a, a, a fantastic player in his heyday. He's made the jump over the course of the past couple of years into management and it just it just hasn't worked out for him. Uh you know obviously the biggest horror story for him was at Monaco and in, uh, in Ligue 1 with this Montreal Impact job that he has um it it really has come down to a bit of a make or break position for him to take hold of because Impact for the most part were in a fairly good place uh, before Henri came in. They, they they brought in a big name to to be the manager. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit less of a task than than what it would be to you know keep Monaco high flying and 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 challenging for the title against PSG. So you would think that this would be kind of the perfect job for him. And based on based on the performance in this match, based on the formation, running something like a 5-4-1, um, you know, you, you, you've got the, you've got the wing, wing backs that were getting forward, but for the most part, um, you know, they were stuck deep, especially with uh, New England Revolution's possession domination. I think the best way to say it is that you're not really seeing the right notes from a guy like him in this position, trying to potentially save his career as a manager. Uh, you know, talk to me about how much you think his influence on this match predicated what ultimately ended up being the result. Do you think that really it was more down to the players on the pitch or were you seeing, were you seeing enough in terms of tactics and formation uh, and the, the, the substitutions that were made to, to, to kind of place this, this performance on Thierry Henry a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I thought it was very interesting in the press conference uh, to to a degree, he kind of put the blame on the shoulders of his players and, he said, "We there's no reason to discuss tactics, but I I thought that that was the number one talking point, frankly, post game. Um, yeah, I mean, he like he he looked to be on the right path in early days in Montreal, and, and perhaps maybe you know his familiarity with with the league, obviously having played with the Red Bulls and having some you know there being a, a French speaking connection there, it it seemed to be good in early days, and then after the break for him to come out and you know play a player like Piet, like I've said, is is, is just very much a central player." in a position that's very foreign to him. I, I thought it was a big gamble. And, and for me, it was one of the biggest reasons that all fell apart. And, and obviously at halftime, he seen that wasn't working and, and he, and he brought on ZBG and he, and he hauled off on Kwonku who was, he, he, he was attempting to be direct, but he, he really let them down on the wing, quite frankly. And 
at that point, it was almost too little too late. New England were just in a groove and, and Carlos Gill and, and Bell were just just connecting. And, and about 10 minutes later, they found a goal. And after that, they they just they, they adjusted their formation a little bit and they, and they went into a counter press. And, and like I said, Montreal, it might have been one nil. But, you know, if you had watched the full game, this really wasn't a close one. And I think for me, Henri, I don't know if it was a wake up call or what it was, but I, I highly doubt we see Payette in that position when they play Toronto. I think it's really interesting, Brady, where you've brought in about Henri placing the blame on his plays in the press conference. One of the things I was really interested to see with Henri when he when he signed up in the first place was how he handled the Montreal squad as a as a man manager. Uh, one of the, one of the big things that stood out in his time at Monaco was how he would quite often throw his players under the bus. He'd have a lot of thoughts with his squad. And I think that's something that he's really got to work on. Uh, sort of in his transition from coaching with, well, firstly as a player with the likes of Arsenal and Barcelona, then as a coach with Belgium, and then sort of heading in as actually taking up the, the managerial role. Uh, I think sort of finding that, that balance between being a disciplinarian and throwing your players under the bus is, is a delicate one. And I don't think he's quite found it yet. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you 100%, Chris. I think that's, that's that's a part of the game that sometimes goes underlooked. And we see so often these these high-profile players, you know, they, they get a managerial opportunity fresh off their playing career. And obviously, they know the game. They've been there and they've done that. But they don't, they don't necessarily know how to manage players. Like you said, that dynamic between, you know, somebody who's on an even level of, of kind of hierarchy versus a manager, you know, com- conversing with a player. And how do you find that happy medium? And there's no there's no cutting corners with this and, and you know Henri's gone from obviously Monaco to, to Montreal and you know, obviously we, we cover the MLS but with due respect it's not they, these aren't equivalent levels he's, he's taking a drop off for what it's worth and it's still it's something that he has to work on and like we said it's not all been doom and gloom he had a great start so uh, I'll, I'll be very interested to see how how he does it moving forward and with a big match against Toronto coming up and obviously a, a game with a ton of history it'll be interesting to see how the emotional side of it uh, plays a factor. Well, and, and and to bring this back around to to what you were talking about with Victor Wanyama, Wanyama's kind of an interesting guy. Um, you you saw how important he was to Tottenham for I, I think probably twenty four to thirty months um, after he first came in. He was a a big name from uh, from Southampton. Was part of an excellent midfield there with Morgan Schneiderlin once upon a time. Um, Wanyama goes. Uh, as that big bruising defensive midfielder does well at Tottenham and then just starts to flounder and starts losing his place to guys like Musa Sissoko and Harry Winks. Um, you know, you, you hardly ever see him on the bench there anymore uh, for, for quite a long time. And then he becomes Montreal Impact's uh, primary number one transfer target and ultimate signing. Uh, you would expect him to come in and, and, and really make a difference in a side like Impact. And we just didn't see that. What are your thoughts on on his performance on the night, and and how much blame can you put for Impact's performance on his shoulders, especially considering the other primary defensive midfielders being used as a right wing back instead of as a de- defensive midfielder alongside him? Um, you know how much how much of it can come down on him? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I I, I think Wanyama, you know, he might he might have had a short lived time at Tottenham where he was kind of kind of a very reliable player for them in a side that you know, a year or two later is in a Champions League final. So, I mean, his his ability can't be can't be dis- disputed. I mean, he, and he, the interesting thing about Wanyama is oftentimes when when players are coming from the Premier League and from Europe, they're they're well past their prime. But he, he, I mean, he's not 30. And in that position, I, I think 
assuming he's fit and he and he's and he's healthy like he he can be a real difference maker but it looked like a, he looked like a player who hadn't played a a high tempo match in a long time and and that's not to say that this was his fault or that he didn't make a difference in the match i mean almost every time the impact did get into the final third it was a ball from wanyama and and unfortunately he wasn't able to get to play the ball and be on the end of it. I mean, he's never been an attacking player, even in his prime. He's a, you know, he's a defensive midfielder. So once he got the ball to the guys who are supposed to take care of business as Boyan and Yoruti and Okwanku, they, they really just, they couldn't get in behind the revolution backline and make it count. So I think it would be harsh to say much of this falls on the shoulders of Wanyama. Uh, I mean, obviously they're going to want more from him. He's a DP signing. He's a player who's played at a, at a world-class club under a world-class manager. So you know, the physicality side of the game was was to be expected. And, and, and he did demonstrate that, to be fair. And, and to a degree, you know, his ability to pass the ball, it it, it impressed me. But, you know, I think Henri is going to want more from him. And, and, and quite frankly, based on his body language, I think he's going to want more from his teammates as well. And finally, Brady, to kind of touch on Bruce Arena's the New England Revolution side here a little bit for this match, two phrases that you don't historically put together are Bruce Arena and high performance or high octane or high pace uh, in terms of style of play. But he really has this New England team operating at a high level of intensity uh, on the pitch, or at least based on what we've seen in this match. How sustainable is this as the tournament goes on, particularly against some of the stronger teams that they play, uh, like whenever they have to face Toronto FC here in about a week? Uh, are they genuine contenders for this tournament? And and to kind of build on that afterwards, let me know if if you think that this sort of high-pressure style is is something that will continue after the tournament as well, once the, the, the league is back in full swing. Yeah, I mean, like you said, Bruce Arena, obviously a guy who has a decorated resume in, in this part of the footballing world, but not necessarily known for, you know, his ambition and his attacking prowess. But, you know, the Revs, like when, when he took over last year, the Revs were in, were in the basement. They were in the bottom of the Eastern Conference and and they looked aside that, that the season was lost. And and under under him, in the last 21 matches, they only they only lost three times and they snuck into the playoffs. So, we shouldn't be too too surprised that they're having the success that they are, and 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 they were just they were getting results consistently as the season went on last year. So uh, I think that's carried over to an extent. Um, with that said, we talked about the dynamic of Montreal's midfield. There really wasn't a lot of mobility in there between the absence of Piet, and obviously we we, we talked about Wanyama. He's a he's a work in progress as as it stands. So. You know, they had two midfielders sit deep in Rowe and Caldwell, and they had some success, and that kind of allowed uh, Gill and and more creative players to, to move forward and, and kind of forget about their defensive abilities. But, you know, when they face a side like Toronto FC, who've got three midfielders who, who, who are genuine, true midfielders who, you know, box to box, you know, Michael Bradley and Marky Delgado and even Jonathan Sorio will, will do both sides of the ball. I mean... Will they be able to stay with that formation? I think it would be a risk. So, and like they look quite comfortable the other night. Uh, but it, it, like we said before, was that was that Montreal's fault, or you know, was that a strength of New England's? I think it would be unfair to dismiss their quality. I mean, they they looked great between, especially Carlos Gill and, and Boo with the goal, obviously there. So Montreal kept them at bay from a you know from a perspective. If you didn't watch the whole match, yes, it was one nil, but. It was as lopsided as a one nil can get for me. So it, it'll be interesting to see how they adjust or if they don't, can they continue to have success against some of the stronger teams in their division? And then again, moving forward throughout the whole season. And Chris, for the last match that I really want to spend some time on, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to come back to you for 
um, uh, the the absolute destruction of of FC Cincinnati by Columbus Crew. What is the way out for Cincinnati? They 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 finished bottom last year in their inaugural season, and now uh, as as sophomores, they are once again at the bottom of the Eastern Conference. They've conceded six goals, and they conceded four in one match in this particular match uh, against Columbus Crew. They've not gotten any better over the winter break. They've not improved themselves enough to bring themselves out of the bare bottom uh, that is the Eastern Conference. Uh, is 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 Japstam the answer, or is is there something more fundamentally wrong with FC Cincinnati here? Uh, well, first off, it was an absolute demolition. Like that is not how you want a derby or a rivalry match to go. And um, I think. In terms of the problems, we all know they can't score goals. Uh, that was a massive problem for them last season. Uh, they, they haven't addressed that yet, I don't think. Uh, but I, I think that's stating the obvious. Um, something I saw Matt Doyle pick up on, on on Twitter, which I think he absolutely got it spot on, was the makeup of the midfield just it just doesn't have any balance to it for me. They brought in Harris Majunian from Philadelphia Union. He's a fantastic ball player. Um, I think if he's playing in a dominant side, he can control a game for you. He can split a defence. He can set the tempo. But he needs guys around him who will do the running for him. Uh, I think Amaya's a good guy to do that. But I, I seriously think that Madunian's that limited in in his movement. I think he needs he needs two guys around him to do that. And Sam Diong, he's not that guy for me. He was, he was signed as a creative player to play behind the striker. Um, he's not going to offer that support that Madunian needs, and it was it was far too easy, I thought, for Columbus to draw Madunian out into one on ones and just turn him. And as soon as you got, you break past him, you're basically leaving your dis- your, your defense exposed. Zorian Mazardis caused absolute havoc once that happened. Well, and in terms of goals as well, you would think that potentially the loan signing of uh, of Jurgen Lokadia from Brighton and Hove Albion would give them a, at least a little bit of a surge in um, in, in their goal scoring. But uh, we don't see him at all in this match. Is it, do you think that Lokadia is the one that's going to be able to step forward for Cincinnati and really bring some bring some goals to that side? Uh, yeah, I think he's, he definitely has the potential to be that guy. Um, I wouldn't say that he turned up any trees in the Premier League. He certainly showed enough to suggest he could do it in MLS. Um, obviously, like you say, he didn't play last night, so that remains to be seen. But as I said, as I touched on before, I, I think the problems run much deeper than just not scoring goals. I, I don't, I don't think they've got a tactical balance yet, and I think until that's addressed, uh, and until they sort of play to their strengths, play to their best players, who I, I think Madunian is one of those guys. I think they're going to keep having keep having trouble like this, and I think teams are just going to keep roasting them through the middle. Do you think that Jap Stam is the answer to the question? How do they get some sort of balance to this side? I think if anyone's going to know how to organise a team, I think Jap Stam should be that guy. He certainly had the playing career to suggest that. He's not been a raging success as a manager. I think the respect he'll bring from his time as a player, and I think his defensive knowledge, if he's given time. I think it might just work out for him. Let's see how Lacardia does, as you say, though. That I think that is is another is it's another big key. And to turn it to the winners of this match, uh, for a side that looks so good at keeping the ball out of their own net uh, over the course of last season, uh, Columbus Crew had a, a lot of trouble last year putting the ball in their opponent's net, and there are a few reasons why 
crew had this electric start and you've named a couple of their of their big players up top uh you know obviously a guy like Giassi Zardes um definitely found his feet in this match and and, and showcased what he's able to do uh at, at, at his fullest potential um as Zella Rayan had a had an an excellent match running that attack uh, and and feeding the balls to the to the to the players who were making fantastic runs in Mukhtar and Diaz how much of their success comes from behind them uh, in this match, and how much of it is down to Darlington Nagby. You bring him back into the side, and yes, Cincinnati are a bad team. They've been a bad team since they've since they've been a part of the MLS. But also, you, you saw a cohesion with the with the attack going forward um, in this match as they as they really put Cincinnati to the sword. So, how much of their success uh, on the day comes down to him? Yeah, I think his signing's absolutely massive. Um, I think it was a great bit of business from Columbus. Uh, I'm probably going to get laughed at for saying it, but I, I don't mean to compare them in terms of actual quality, just style of play. I've, I've always seen him sort of as MLS's version of N'Golo Kante, where mm. if you're playing against a team that's going to press hard and going to put you under a lot of pressure, he can he can turn. He's the most press resistant midfielder in MLS for me. Uh, he can turn out that pressure really easily. Progress the ball forward quickly. We know we know about his defensive qualities. He's really good at breaking up play. If if the crew spend a lot of time out of possession, um, he's he's really good at that side of the game. I think once once he gets in possession, once he's turned out that press, he's really good at just playing those forward balls quickly to the more creative guys further forward as well. Um, one thing I saw a lot of during his time with Atlanta was when Atlanta had their sort of the their opponents camped into their own box. He quite often played that role where he was the guy, if Atlanta needed to switch play, he'd be the guy sat so that you could play inside and he could switch it back out again. Uh, I just th- I think he's got a really varied skill set. I think it, it's made a big difference in just getting it to those creative guys quicker. Um, last season, the, the crew were way too reliant on uh, Jossi Zardes and Pedro Santos. Obviously, Zellerian coming in, he's, he's hit the ground running really well. I think having a guy behind him who can, who can not only mop up, but sort of service those guys a lot quicker. I think that's made a massive difference so far. Well, and it frees up the attack more than anything. You know, if you're going to put that much quality in the attack, then you you really don't want them. You really don't want them to sit back and have to worry about doing the defensive work because you don't have that. You don't have that bridge that 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 link between the defense and the and and the attack. And and you're absolutely right, especially whenever you figure in uh, his his press resistance as a player. Uh, whenever he's on the ball, uh, you, you it allows a guy like Artur and uh, it, it, to to settle into his game a little bit more and, and, and cover his side of the pitch. Uh, and then you've got Nagby. All you have to do is get him the ball and he'll be able to switch it forward uh, in, in transition. So I think you're absolutely right. To touch on the to touch on the the last couple of matches of the uh, of the week, just in a in a little bit of a quick fashion here, New York City FC went down one nil to Philadelphia Union through an Alejandro Bedoya goal. Uh, Brady, why can't New York City score? It, it seems like such an oddball question or such a simplistic question, but. They're the only team in MLS since, since the beginning of the uh, of the MLS season and uh, after the Union match that haven't been able to put one past their opponent's goalkeeper and and really they've got the team to do it. What's their what's the problem here? Yeah, I, I think I think if I had that answer, I think Ronnie Dyla would be on the next plane out of New York, <laughs> and they might have me down there. Quite frankly, um, no, I mean we're we're talking about the struggles of, of Cincinnati and obviously Inter Miami are. are 
are hoping to get their first point as well. And they haven't scored a goal. These teams have scored a goal in New York City, who's you know been this been this great team the last couple of years. They they haven't scored. And I, I was in the house when they played uh, Toronto back in March, right before everything shut down. And you know they showed some great moments. And and BMO Field is, is one of the toughest away venues in the league. And 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 they ultimately went down one nil. And that's been the same scoreline for three games. So on one hand, I mean they're not getting peppered, but when you're not going to score, that's it. You're not you're not going to pick up three points. And like you said, that they have. They have the players that that should be producing offense. They have three guys who scored more than ten goals in the league last year, and Castellanos and Matrita and High Bear as well. And then you know, Maxi Morales. I mean, he had he had twenty assists last year. The, the, the goals should be just just be flowing for them. But I, I think it would be naive to say you know oh this is a bad day at the office or this was bad luck. We're talking about three matches. Um, there's some genuine concern here, and, and and the biggest thing for me is obviously they they had a managerial change over the summer with. With Dominic Tarrant, you know, former former right hand man for Pep Guardiola, he moved on, and you know, Ron, Ronnie Dial has taken over, and they just really—I don't know—they really haven't been able to figure out the balance. And you know, some of those guys I mentioned who, who've had these stats that jump off the page, they weren't even in the eleven yesterday. So uh, I think they're getting in their own way. I think they're trying to figure out, you know, who are their best players in, in what position, and you know, when they figure that out. They've proven that they have the players to, you know, to make some noise in, in the Eastern Conference and, and and even beyond that. So I'm not giving up on New York City, but you know, at this point in time, I, I think there's there's genuine cause for concern right now. Uh, one thing I would say on NYCFC, I think they've had some bad luck early in the MLS season um, against the Crew in the first game. They had a man sent off quite early. That that's always going to going to kill your hopes in the game, especially against a team that looks as good as the Crew do this season. It's important to remember that they scored a lot of goals early on in the CONCACAF Champions League. They put five past San Carlos in the first leg. Uh, also, against the Union, they did generate, I think it was 1.87 XG. Uh, Castellanos, Mackay, Steven, Hebert all missed good chances. I personally think that the three names alone that I've just named there uh, are too good to keep down for an entire season. I do think once the once they hit the rhythm, I think if they get a good run of games where they can keep the squad fit, try not to get red cards, of course, uh, I think the goals will start coming. I think that attack's way too good to keep down. And to stick with you here, Chris, uh, talk to me about the Philadelphia Union side that came out. Obviously, it was it was Bedoya who got the goal, but it, it, one of the stronger talking points about the team that was put out uh, on the day was the youth that was injected into this side, whether it be just for this tournament or, or potentially for the future, was astounding based on what you typically see out of an MLS side. Uh, three of the four players on the back line uh, were 24 or younger. Uh, they started uh, Brendan Aronson, uh, a 19-year-old uh, academy product in the at the tip of a, a, a midfield diamond as an attacking midfielder that's a lot of responsibility to put on a 19 year old kid um and then they handed them they handed an 18 year old jack devries his his debut on the day uh is this injection of youth uh, a concerted effort to to look to the future by philadelphia union or do you think that this is just going to be a, a tournament blip that that we're going to see uh, as an attempt to build fitness or a, a, an attempt to uh, breed competition in the club yeah, I think it's going to be a concerted effort myself. Um, they have got good guys around them to lead these youngsters. You know, players like you said, Bedoya, he always seems to step up just when the union need him. Uh, they've got Elsinio as an impact player. Uh, he's got a lot of experience in Europe, won the UEFA Cup with Shakhtar Donetsk. Uh, you've got Raymond Gaddis at right back, who's really experienced at this level. But I, I think 
without disrespect to the union, because I, I personally love them as a club. I've had quite a few dealings with them recently, and they've been great to deal with as a club. I think they operate in the right way. They're not one of the most attractive MLS markets, so I think they do have to look at a different way of attracting players. If that's bringing players through their own system, then that's what they've got to do. I think you've got McKenzie at centre-back. I think he's already proven that he's good enough at this level. You've got Brendan Aronson, you mentioned. He proved last season that he can make things happen. Um, I personally think he's going to be one of the next ones to, to make the jump to the to a higher level. So it's not like they're trusting a ton of guys who, who've never done this before. They, these guys do have a bit of experience and they've shown a lot of talent. It does look like a concerted effort and I, I personally think it's the right way to go for the club. Yeah, no, I know. 100%. I, I agree with what, what Chris has said there. And anyway, he mentioned, you know, New York, it, it, we're, not, we're not talking about a, a team that was dominated by Philadelphia. And ultimately, I think, you know, this game was 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 decided in the battle between the sticks and Andre Blake was, was fantastic on the night. And the one goal, Sean Johnson was probably to blame there. He looked a little suspect for me. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dig too far into this result, but I mean, kudos to Philadelphia. They really impressed me in this one. They were energetic from the hop. And this was probably the tightest affair of the tournament so far played at the highest tempo. Like we said, it wasn't necessarily the sexiest soccer, but it was certainly scrappy. And, and if you've watched MLS playoff games, it was it was just about on brand. And Brady, I'm going to stick with you here as we switch to the, uh, the 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 new Florida Derby, the Turnpike Derby, whatever it is that it ends up being called. Orlando City FC uh, taking on Inter Miami. Um, Inter are only not bottom of the table because NYCFC haven't scored a goal and because FC Cincinnati are just a little bit worse than them uh, as far as the the prior to the shutdown. They've lost all three of their league matches prior to, and they succumbed late to, uh, I think, 42-year-old Nani and Orlando City in this match. Was the, was this squad properly cultivated to compete at this level, or have are there other problems that have led to this early hole they've dug themselves in? Well, I'll say this much. I mean, you know, as 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 the club announced that they had intentions of joining the league and and, and continued to you know promote uh, their their logo and their and their fan base and and some potential signings, I was I was certainly very excited for the prospect of of a day a David Beckham ran team signing some of the biggest names in Europe. You know, we heard you know James Rodriguez, David Silva. I think I even read. Cristiano Ronaldo once upon a time. So, you know, some top, top players in European soccer coming to South Beach and that hasn't, that hasn't happened yet. So they've made signings, but they've been young, kind of relatively unknown players for now. Obviously it's early days for Beckham, but you know, he, he's got to be frustrated. They're still searching for a first point through three games. And I think especially in this one against Orlando, I think they would have really wanted that one, be it a, not the strongest opponent and be obviously a, a natural geographic rival. So I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, once the, the Premier League and, and La Liga and, and all the other major European competitions begin to finish up their seasons, uh, I, I think they're going to try to make a splash. I don't know who they'll be able to, you know, bring over with the results they've been having, but I, I, they're going to try their best, I think, to make to make a signing, be it a marquee name or two. And, and from there, we, we've seen in this league, if you get one player, you know, DC United brought in Wayne Rooney in recent years and, he turned them around until he ultimately left. So I, I'm certainly not giving up on Miami, but I think I, I think from a fan's perspective, what they might have anticipated their their inaugural eleven looking like and what we ultimately seen might not have been exactly the same. 
at the start of the season, obviously they, they brought in Pellegrini as the first designated player, uh, Rodolfo Pizarro come in as well. There seemed to be a real feeling from inside the club that those guys could sort of get them through until the end of the European season and then they'll 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 make the big move. As it's turned out so far, I mean, especially against Orlando, they're an absolute shambles defensively. And if it carries on like that, I just I can see it being a Cincinnati season where by the time they, they get the big the big name in, it's too late. They'll miss out on the playoffs. The, the squad will be sort of sapped of confidence. I get the feeling there might have been a bit of a mistake here in, in the way they built the roster from, from start to finish. If it did turn out where they had a Cincinnati season, finishing bottom, it, it's not the worst thing in the world, given that you know they can't get relegated, obviously, but it, I think it'd be a real shame, considering how much hype there was around the club globally and sort of in the local market as well. I think, I think it'd be a big shame for him to sort of flop in the first season, give, given who's behind the club, who they've got as the manager and, and all the expectations. Well, and to, and to stick with you to, to switch over to Orlando here, I know one of the points that you wanted to make, and I think what's been making the rounds pretty pretty heavily on Twitter, is uh, one Dom Dwyer. He was once this flashy, quote-unquote, youth at Sporting KC about five years ago at the, the, the ripe young age of 24. And um, we all drooled over this guy because he was a UK-born player, uh, just so happened to have an, an, enough American citizenship to, to potentially be considered uh, for the U.S. men's national team. He was lighting things up at Sporting KC. He was a, he was a, real, a, a real rangy, intense kind of striker. And five years on, he's 29. He's lost a lot of his production that made him such a coveted forward. And this past week in this match should have been sent off maybe on two or three occasions. Is is Dom Dwyer, not just with his performances that he's putting in on the pitch, but as as a as a, a hazard for 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 yellow cards and bookings and 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 these sorts of things, is he holding Orlando City back from taking their game to the next level? <sighs> I don't want to go in too strong on the guy, but I do think he's, he's someone that needs replacing if, if Orlando got serious playoff aspirations. Uh, I, I put out a tweet. I can't exactly remember exactly what it said, but at the time when when he was sort of charging around like a bull in a china shop, I think he was just trying to take out every Miami player in front of him. How he didn't get sent off that challenge on Reyes, I'll never know. And like you say, he was a walking disaster. Um I think he only had 18 touches of the ball, completed, I think it was 55% of his his passes, really wasn't involved apart from going in for 50-50s and trying to wipe players out. It's interesting to look at his goal record because he's only, obviously he had that really good season on loan in USL in 2013 with Orlando where I think he scored 22 in 17. Other than that, in the, in the, in the three years he's been with Orlando now, not including this season, He's only broken seven goals once, and even then it was only 13 goals. To me, if Orlando are going to be taken seriously, I think they've got a great DP there in, in Nani, who's a match winner, as we saw the other night. I think they need a guy in the middle to, to support him, otherwise it's just going to be another season of disappointment for him. Now I'm going to open this up to both of you. Is there anything at all to say about Seattle Sounders versus San Jose Earthquakes um, le- legitimately? I don't know... I don't know if I was able to watch the entire match because I, I don't think I had any more than maybe a note on my notepad about it. And I, I don't even remember what that was anymore. Is, is, is there anything really to bring, bring forward about this match? I, I would say 
it was it was slightly similar to the case of with NYCFC where I think if we're in mid-season, Rui Diaz sticks his chance away first time and Seattle go and take the points. They've, they've got a great attack. They've got some great playmakers. I think they, well, obviously, they won MLS Cup. They've got quality all over the pitch. I, I think one, we've, we've all seen how they can sort of hum through a season without really being too spectacular and then just turn it on right at the end. I wouldn't be too worried if I was a Sounders fan. Yeah, I mean, like we said, this is a one and done game, and when you're playing San Jose and, and the man marking style that, that that they go with, it, it's always going to be frustrating, particularly when you're coming off a, you know, a, a four month layoff. But I think Seattle will be slightly disappointed with a nil nil, just based on the fact that you know they are the reigning MLS Cup champs. But it was never going to be easy against the Earthquakes. You know, it, I think it, I think San Jose will feel job well done. It, it's it's a point and. Uh, you know, they, they, they drew TFC 2-2 in their season opener. So that's, you know, those are the two quote-unquote best teams from last year that, that that they've been able to, you know, get a stalemate with. So, you know, the tactics and the way that they play takes plenty of discipline and it's it's a tough ask for your for your squad across the 34-game season. But, you know, in a tournament format, it's a little shorter. You know, that they're not a team I don't think anybody around the league is going to be looking forward to facing off against and the last thing that I want to touch on that's that's really match worthy. I don't want to get too much into uh, uh, predictions as the the matches are coming thick and fast over the course of the next three weeks. Um, but I do want to touch on uh, LAFC and and how how we think that they might fare over the course of this tournament without uh, reigning league MVP Carlos Vela. He released in a statement prior to MLS's back tournament starting. Uh, I would like nothing more than than to be with my teammates in Orlando. I always want to give everything I have to my club, our fans, and supporters of the city of L.A. However, it is, the, it is in the best interest of the health of my family to stay at home and be with my wife during what is a risky pregnancy. And a completely understandable reason to not go and participate. Um, however, looking at LAFC's chances going forward and, and, and how solid this squad is, even when you don't factor in Vela, but also when your best player is gone, you do turn into a little bit different team. Uh, Chris, I'll start with you. How do you see LAFC finishing in this tournament without him? Yeah, I talked about this recently in a piece for WFI. Um, I think anyone who's ruling them out at this point, uh, I think it's really foolish. Uh, yeah, okay. Losing the, the league's MVP is always going to be a big blow. Um, we, we all saw how good Vela was last season. He was an absolute force of nature. But it's important to look at I think the squad that Bob Bradley's built around him is arguably it's the best supporting cast we've ever seen for a star player in MLS, at least in recent history. Um, you've got Diego Rossi there, who's, who's backing up with, I think it was 16 goals last season. You've got Atto Esther in the midfield, who's who's probably going to be off to Europe very soon. That's the kind of quality player he is. Eddie Segura in the defence, he's, he's one of the best centre-backs, if not the best centre-back in the league. Um, and... It's, I think it's important to, to remember as well, Bob Bradley's already planned for this kind of eventuality. You know, he's already got Diamandi there, who's a good goal scorer at this level, but he also brought in Bradley Wright Phillips, which, yeah, sure, he didn't have the best last season with Red Bulls, but we all know how clinical he can be at this level. And to have that kind of experience, either coming off the bench or even starting if there's an injury crisis or ex- like sort of external factors like this, I think that was a really smart bit of business. So, to rule them out at this point, I think it, it'd be very foolish. Yeah, I, I'd have to echo that for sure, Chris. I mean, are they going to miss Vela? Absolutely. I mean, reigning, reigning MVP, reigning goal-scoring leader. But like you said, Diego Rossi, 16 goals last year. 
very young player, only going to get better. And, you know, with, with Vela out of the lineup and, and their offense kind of, kind of re- revolt, like based around his success, I think Rossi's only going to get more touches. Uh, I love their midfield three. I think, I think K blessing and Atuesta are just fantastic. You know, blessing is just a ball of energy and Mark Anthony K has that left foot and he's very calm on the ball. And then obviously, like you said, Atuesta is, you know, has the potential to play overseas. So I, I would take their midfield three against ba- almost any league wide. And then, yeah, they've got a couple of young Uruguayans in Rossi and then Rodriguez as well. He's only 20 years old and obviously he's going to get a big opportunity here. And and then the veteran in, in Wright Phillips comes in. So does this hurt their chances slightly? Of course, you're talking about a guy who scored 34 goals. But yeah, like like Chris said, that it would be incredibly short sighted to, to rule LAFC out and if I was any side, I, I I would not be looking forward to playing them. The fact that you've just named a few more players that even I didn't think to mention then, you know, Mark Anthony K and, and Blessing in midfield and Rodriguez on the wing, yeah, he's not done it so far. Um, he's, he's not hit the heights, but this guy's going to have a serious point to prove in this tournament. With, with Vela not there, uh, he started scoring goals at international level. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we're, we're seeing the likes of AC Milan linked with him recently. He's going to have a serious point to prove. I, I think this could be the making of him. But the fact that those three guys you just named that that I've left off, it just illustrates how deep this squad is, um, and and how much of a threat they still are even without Vela. Well, and to bring this the, this first episode of the North American Soccer Show to a close, let's talk postponements, coronavirus, uh, like everybody is right now, uh, and in compliance with the 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 biosphere bubble that the, all of the teams are are, are living in right now. Chris, I'll start with you. How do you think MLS and U.S. soccer have dealt with getting the MLS tournament going as well as trying to restart the, 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 the league again? We've seen, we've seen almost, almost no struggles from, say, the, the top five leagues in Europe in, in, in getting their respective leagues back, leagues back running again. But thus far, uh, Dallas FC uh, pulls out. Thus far, FC Dallas has pulled out before the tournament even began due to coronavirus cases. Nashville SC almost made it to their first match before uh, there were four or five coronavirus cases in their squad and were subsequently sent home. Uh, and now, after one positive result for DC United and an, an inconclusive result uh, for a Toronto FC player, their match, which was supposed to be played earlier today, has been postponed. Uh, how do you rate how well MLS has ha, has dealt with trying to get this back on track. Is it? Do, do you think that there's anything about the issues that we've seen thus far with some of these teams is on MLS, or do you think it's more of a do you think it's more of a club by club basis, which is why only a few teams have been sent home? Uh, you know, it, it's tough for me to to make too much of a sort of a judgment on it because I'm over here in the UK. I'm not in on the ground in the states and. Um, but what, one problem that was always going to jump out straight away was the fact that all these teams have got to fly to Orlando, first and foremost, which you're going on a plane um, to all recycle there. You, you're sort of exposed to, you, you breathe in other people's air quite a lot more. So that, that was always good. You've got to go through the airport. That's always going to be an issue. From, from the league's perspective, I did find it really puzzling. It's something a lot of people have asked, why did take it to Orlando and to Florida, which is basically been the epicenter recently in, in the States, taking the entire league to the place that's that spiked this hard with cases was, was really bizarre from the off. And also the fact that Orlando's weather isn't exactly reliable as well. So, you know, if you're running on a tight schedule and you start getting weather delays like we have been doing, uh, that's not ideal either. 
Um, it did result in me being up till six o'clock this morning as well. <laughs> I think o- over here in Europe, generally speaking, of course, there's been exceptions. There's, there's been there's been people. There's been there's been players sort of breaking lockdown rules now and again. There's there's been the general public have done it now and again. On the whole, it's been followed quite well. And um, I don't think they've got the same travel issues as they do in America. But it, it, like I say, it's quite tough for me to really make a make a hard judgment on it, not being on the ground over there. And I'd, I'd love to hear what you guys think about about how it's sort of been handled state to state and sort of across government. Well, being here in the states, I think one of the biggest issues that you're that you're finding in in, in America is that due to i think the, the the general attitude of of the american people towards uh really any semblance of control uh especially right now in the highly highly divisive politicized climate that that we're in you know i i think one of the biggest issues that you're finding is that there's so much variation on an individual level about Who's going to follow what rules and in what capacity? And I think that's that's created a lot of issues thus far for the MLS trying to get things back on track. You know, Chris, you mentioned that there was, for the most part, it's been all on board uh, across the, the the leagues over in Europe. You know, you you take the Premier League for example, a couple of Watford players. Um, tested positive and they were sequestered and they were quarantined uh, and they were set off to the side for seven days in which they were retested. Uh, but the entire team didn't shut down. The game was still allowed to be played uh, right there in the very beginning throws of the uh, of the first you know, quote-unquote match week. Here, on the other hand, it's not just one or two players. It's, it's uh, several players and several staff members. Uh, you've got the rules that are being broken uh, for the, bri- the, the biosphere bubble, where players are ordering in food despite it being strictly maintained that that is not to be done in order to keep out any outside presence, with Florida being one of the big hotspots for the coronavirus right now in the U.S. So there's a lot, I think, that goes into... Um, how exactly things are being handled over here from a from a compliance standpoint but one thing you do have to say is that you know the MLS is doing everything that they can d- despite those factors that are contributing to the MLS not really coming back on time um you know between the the, the biosphere bubble and having the 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 gall the audacity or or the 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 courage or whatever the case may be whatever you want to call it to, to kick teams out of a tournament that has ramifications on a club season uh, based on their coronavirus tests uh, and and their their compliance with the rules. I mean, this is this is the best that you can do with what you have to work with. And and from my standpoint, I think the MLS needs to be to a certain degree applauded for 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 going about their business the way that they have. Brady, um, if if you want to touch on uh, MLS and U.S. soccer like Chris and I have. That would be great, but also let me know, since you do live a little bit closer to the States and you do have a little bit more uh, close-up, hand-in-hand experience with a share in a border, um, let, me know, let me know what you think about whether or not the, the, the attitude of the American people right now towards the coronavirus pandemic may have any kind of bearing on, on the MLS's back tournament and the, uh, the subsequent attempt to revive the season. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, like Chris said, uh, I can't really provide any insider perspective. Uh, I'm a little closer th- than he might be, but as I live in Canada here, 
two very different worlds despite sharing a border, especially with the ongoing situation. Um, you know, I did spend some time down in Florida back back in March during spring training for for Major League Baseball. And I'll say that the perception of, of, of the ongoing situation in Florida versus versus back home were, were two very different things. You know, the National Hockey League, obviously hockey's huge in Canada. Uh, they've they've chosen to go the route of, of playing here in Canada and, and just with with the way that the, the number of cases are in Toronto and Edmonton, they decided that those are the cities they want to go with. And, you know, hindsight, hindsight is 2020 and a lot of, and a lot of uh, Toronto FC fans at least are saying, well, why couldn't we have played up here? But once that Orlando decision was made, I, I think there was a lot of logistics that would have went in and moving it. And obviously it's not the dream destination based on what's going down there in Florida. I don't think anybody would argue that with regards to the, the, the FC Dallas situation and, and the, and then Nashville, I, they, they did the right thing in both of those scenarios. And then obviously this morning, as Chris mentioned, it was 6 a.m. for him and not quite that early for me, but nonetheless to wake up to a game that's not even going ahead was disappointing. But, you know, they, they made the right decision. And, 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 you know, since we've been on this podcast, they've come out and said both those tests have, have now both come back as negative, uh, assuming they test again and the results are once again negative. Uh, Stephen Goff is saying they're going to try to kick off tomorrow morning. So, so fingers crossed for that one. So we, we, we just want to get games played here. And like I said, I'm not here to make the case that MLS is handling everything 110% correctly, but since they've been in Orlando, I think they've done a relatively good job with it. And, and if we get that, that Toronto FC DC game in tomorrow, then I, I think that's a job well done as soon as they can do it safely. All right, boys, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up uh, and get ourselves geared and prepped for some more MLS this evening. Uh, Chris, let everybody know uh, where we can find you and what we should be able to expect from you, uh, whether it be on uh, World Football Index or uh, on some of the other sites that you write for here in the coming days. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at CJSmith91. Um, obviously, I do all a lot of MLS content for WFI. I'll be trying to cover as many games as I possibly can over the next few days. Um, trying to also sleep between that because the times are crazy over here. Other than that, you can find me on uh, squawker.com as well. That's where I tend to cover more sort of Premier League and more European football. And Brady, how about you? Where can people uh, get a hold of you? And uh, do you have anything in the works for, for this upcoming week? Yeah, so same as Chris. Uh, obviously, Twitter. I mean, uh, yeah, you can find me at Brady Reed underscore. And obviously, you know, contributing with World Football Index, be it you know, Canadian soccer or obviously MLS with, with this tournament going on. And, you know, as, as the Toronto FC situation continues to unfold, I guess that will kind of determine what I've got in the works. So stay tuned for that. And, and with uh, waking the red as well, I, I cover Toronto FC and Canadian soccer. So yeah, between the two of those, I mean, exciting times in Canadian soccer and obviously exciting times in MLS. So hopefully they can continue this, this tournament as we figure everything out here. And that will do it for the first episode of the North American Soccer Show. I'm Dylan Baker at DLN underscore BKR on Twitter. We will see you next week.